Well, hello, fellow humans, friends. Welcome, or welcome back to Mind Medicine. I'm Tommy Moore, host of the show, and my job is to inspect and dissect some of the leading psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists, and leaders in psychedelic-assisted therapies from all over the world to shine a light on breakthrough therapies for mental illness. Awareness, education, and better therapeutic solutions are urgently required for you to have any chance of alleviating the suffering of individuals and the burden of mental health on society. Mind Medicine Australia is a registered charity committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness in Australia through expanding the treatment options available to medical practitioners and their patients. Mind Medicine Australia is providing educational material and events, therapist training, ethical and legal guidelines, and now developing an Asia-Pacific Centre for Emerging Mental Health Therapies, as well as supporting clinical research. At Mind Medicine Australia, we believe that everyone should have access to the safest and most effective care. We're a small organisation doing big things, and we need your support. Alright, let's do this. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you're well. I hope you're feeling good. If not, if you feel stressed, anxious, disheartened, they're all feelings for a reason, and that's okay. It's how our body tells us that it's out of balance, it's out of alignment, and it's our job to find what it needs. But the issue is, many of us don't have the tools or the knowledge to go about doing that. But we must know what nourishes and serves our body, because when we nourish and serve our body, our mind will follow. Alright, Dr. Tanvir Ahmed, he's a psychiatrist, he's an author, he's a columnist, and he works quite across the board, he seems to be in a lot of different aspects, so he works in the public, private and forensic sectors of mental health, so He has quite a good viewpoint and scope of the complexity of mental health. He has written two books, which we speak about in this conversation. His first book, Fragile Nation, examines the rise of mental health through patient stories. His most recent book, In Defense of Shame, was published this month, being November 2020. Tanvir has served on local government, the government advisory board called Australian Multicultural Council, the Advertising Standards Board, and as a governor of the Smith family. He was previously chosen by a Prime Minister's Committee as one of a hundred future leaders of Australia. In this conversation, Tanvir and I spoke about the balance of health and economics during a pandemic. Uh, we speak about the medicalization of experience, why being diagnosed with a mental health condition can often reinforce a weak or damaged individual. We also speak about the three disciplines of mental health being neuroscience, behaviorism, and psychoanalysis, the pressure of self-fulfillment, the primitive brain, and its association with instant reward, or what Tanvir calls the lizard brain, and how that can link with social media vulnerability, exploiting those primitive circuits through unending novelty, whether that be highly palatable foods or social media. We also speak about modern masculinity and finish off the conversation with psychedelic therapies and their potential across the board in mental health and how psychedelics shake up these rigid circuits associated with the primitive aspect of our brain but i'll leave it at that hopefully my sales pitch for this conversation has worked just as a disclaimer before we get into this conversation too the audio quality isn't perfect but i have adjusted the levels in editing this conversation so hopefully that has done its wonders in making this an enjoyable conversation and once again, I will leave it at that. Please enjoy. Tanvir, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to have me on, thanks. I'm really looking forward to having this, this conversation. Now, Tanvir, you are a psychiatrist, author, and columnist. But how is it you describe what you do? 
Yeah, look, I mean, you've described it reasonably well. I, I, I'm clearly primarily a, a psychiatrist, uh, and the nature of my, I guess there's various types of psychiatry, but I was probably one reason I was attracted to psychiatry is that you could be quite a generalist, you could be quite broad, and it overlapped a lot more, say, with the social sciences and and disciplines outside of traditional medicine, in a way. Uh, and that's partly what attracted me to psychiatry. It was closer to, say, the human experience and stories about that. But I did leave medicine for a bit, and I pursued the media. So I've always had an interest in, in storytelling and... Uh, um, uh, and communications, if you like. And for a couple of years, I was, well, almost 20 years ago, I left in my early stages as a junior doctor. And I considered journalism as, a, I guess, almost a full-time career. I did a cadetship at SBS TV. But even then, it's funny, I was advised even then by some, uh, even people like Mary Kostakidis, who who's a newsreader at the time, saying, oh, look, you have got, you've got an extraordinary degree and you'd be crazy to kind of, you know, leave it, which, which was interesting advice and I'm probably prescient advice given some of the changes in the journalistic industry. So in some ways I've always tried to marry the two, like I, while I'm thoroughly, primarily a psychiatrist working in the public, private and even the forensic sectors, so right across kind of every facet of psychiatry, I do work very hard at kind of thinking what are the broader elements that my day job may touch upon and really psychiatry touches on almost you know every aspect of society these days and your timing is good in that we've just had the product productivity commission uh review just released only yesterday in parliament and you really got a scope of the sheer breadth of what we call mental health now whether it's disability the, the law the workplace it kind of feels as i mean it's really a synonym for uh emotional distress and just kind of emotional life in general. So it's become such a broad term and arguably too broad uh, in that we're medicalizing kind of more and more aspects of home and li uh, of, of life potentially. So the way I see it is I, I have a day job where I see patients, but then the, I also try and spend time where I think of the broader implications uh, societally, politically uh, of, of the job and the people I see. So I try and marry the two, and that's why I guess I write. And I've also had um, involvement in politics, like I've served in local government and various boards. So it's it's, it's actually some people look at my career and say, "Well, you you kind of um, you're in some uh, you spread yourself you know quite widely." But I actually see them as quite closely linked. I agree, and the medicalization of mental health is something that I would like to cover later on in this conversation. You mentioned mental health and you're right, it is a broad term and there is a lot of unnecessary emotional distress and suffering that happens. And I'd like to point out that governments and medical experts have been aware of the fragility and susceptibility of mental health through this year and through the lockdown periods. Through my own personal lens, it seems the immediate catastrophic infection risk has been at the expense of all else. How have you seen it play out from a health and economic perspective? Look, it has been a challenging balance, you're right, and we've seen slightly different approaches right throughout the world. And, I mean, we have we'll put this in context where the modern Western societies are possibly the most prosperous and peaceful societies in, in history in many ways. And Australia is arguably at the top of the pile. So we're probably in amongst the most prosperous, peaceful societies in the world prior to this. And you have th you know, people like say Israeli, the Israeli philosopher Yuval Harari talks about, so the modern crisis in Western societies is sort of extreme prosperity with a lack of purpose. That's kind of the, the combination uh, it's become life sort of has a kind of bland element, uh, kind of a lack of spirituality or a metaphysical component. And that overlaps a lot with uh, mental health as well. So arguably mental health has filled that gap. So we should remember that we come from that sort of base where large portions of the population have not really faced significant adversity 
in the context of, say, major war or major economic uh, plight and the social safety net we have today, say, compared with, say, half a century ago or the Depression is, is vastly superior. So we do have to see it in that context. So I think in that respect, we, and I think the government was very good there where they, they spent lots of money and what they planned for, the reality turned out to be far better. I mean, their original plans was, you know, maybe six to 12 months, we potentially locked down and shut down almost. And obviously, I mean, you're in Victoria, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, Tommy. And so I'm guessing, obviously, Victoria had it significantly worse and had one of the strongest lockdowns in the world. So look, I think overall, I think the actual, you know, whether we overreacted or not, I think will become clearer over the next six to 12 months. And there are those who say we overreacted, but I think in the broader scheme of things, and you look what's happening in Europe. Look, I'm probably, I'm doctors are probably too cautious. And um, for, for me, I, I just take, a, I think we have to judge over time. And realistically, Australia is so well placed compared to the rest of the world. And probably the measures, when we look back historically, will seem relatively slight. As long as government can really help, government and the communities can really help. And in New South Wales, we've just had a significant budget where, you know, there's huge stimulus trying to help the sectors most affected, you know, especially hospitality and entertainment, uh, arts. Um, so, look, I think we're far better placed than most. But there's no question mental health, well, there was a strain on that, you know, look at that social size chose so challenging, stuck indoors, obviously economic plight for a lot of people, a lot of dreams lost. Uh, I think the digital side certainly um, mitigated against that. You know, again, a few decades ago, we couldn't connect digitally the way we are able to currently. So I think that has mitigated a little. So overall, I think it certainly put a spotlight on mental health and, and, and that's healthy and we had the bushfires to that as well. So, so there's certainly been a degree of very visible uh, adversity at a natural level. It's really been, I think this year's really highlighted this kind of how uh, man remains at the mercy of nature <laughs> on many levels uh, and we can overstate our mastery if you like. But I think overall, especially Australia, I think we're, you know, we're far better placed than most of the world. You're right. Australia is isolated and that has been extremely helpful this year in managing the infection and mortality risk. And being a new virus and not knowing the death rate, not knowing how bad it actually is, requires a cautious approach, which is necessary to begin with. As this year has played out and we have more data and statistics and we've been able to adapt in many respects, but... I still feel that there is that argument or debate that what are the trade-offs? Stabilizing infection has had its obvious mental health barriers, social isolation, as you mentioned, but I agree this has helped shine light in the mental health space. Oh, I think they're very significant. And look, I think, I think there will, I think over time we'll see, arguably Victoria in particular probably, you know, overdid it given the number of cases, you know, you look at most of the world and, they, they can sit with thousands of cases a day and, and, and have fairly minimal lockdown. So I think, again, I think this is partly a, a pointer to the Australian experience. Like we've faced far less adversity than, you know, the most of the rich world. Uh, so I just don't think we're, we're that prepared for it. So there's a degree of overreaction, I think, where I don't think we can tolerate much distress and adversity at a public level. Uh, so there's a there's a tendency to overreach, uh, and we can afford it. In some ways, we can probably get away with it, um, but uh, there'll be a lot of sufferers, particularly in Victoria, than others. And but the, the hope is it's not so long that they can't catch up or that they can't be cushioned. That I guess that's my hope, without necessarily knowing having any certainty around that. Definitely. And as you mentioned earlier, there has been a rise in virtual technologies and shifting to a more online approach. What has psychiatry looked like for you this year? Yeah, look, I think you're exactly right, Tommy. I think you allude to the changes. I mean, there's a sort of, there's a view that epidemics uh, have tended to speed up sort of pre-existing trends. And the, and the most obvious one is the, the rush to digital. So we've seen, you know, huge 
uh, increase in say tech stock prices, you know, the various digital platforms, whether it's Fang, Facebook, Amazon, etc., or you know, companies like Zoom, Slack, uh, and at a doctory level, the most obvious change is a, a significant uptick in 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 digital in telehealth. Uh, you know, which, which is really quite welcome. You look at a place like Australia, so widely distributed. Um, uh, you know, we've got one of the least dense countries in the world and we're thoroughly urbanised. So I would often have patients who travel for hours. You know, they'll travel three, four hours from regional towns to come and see me. And even though they may have had telehealth, it kind of wasn't deemed terribly acceptable. And that was especially the case when I'd see people for, say, legal reasons or compensation or, or uh, yeah, they, these sort of things, often insurers or, or courts didn't kind of give it the same weight if you'd seen someone through telehealth. But I think that's changed significantly now. And so I probably see the most obvious change for me is uh, probably a 10 to 20% increase in people I see through telehealth. Uh, it, digitally and also the, the phone as well. So that both those components are much more accepted. Uh, I still think the technology has a way to catch up, particularly when some people uh, are in you know out of regional areas, remote sort of areas. Uh, but I think that's a very welcome change, uh, and really one that you know benefits all of us. Yeah, definitely. Now. In preparation for this interview, I did get a chance to look at some of your books. Firstly, let's talk about Fragile Nation. How I took it was that mental health problems have less to do with psychiatric disorders in the sense of a reductionist medical diagnosis and more to do with social alienation and moral conflict. Could you perhaps touch on that concept? A little further? Yeah, sure. Look, I think that's very relevant. I mean, look, one way to think, when you hear this term mental health, now, I've been asked about it just this week with the Productivity Commission. So it's really three different disciplines. So one is neuroscience. So you can think of brain chemistry and, you know, debates about psychedelics will overlap most closely with that. But the other two components are behaviorism, and, and that's this idea that thoughts lead to actions and emotions are linked to sort of negative thought patterns. And that's really what psychologists do. They try and alter sort of negative thought patterns. And the other aspect is what was traditionally called psychoanalysis. And that's really about there's a primitive component. We have instincts and drives, aggression, sexuality, this kind of things. And often that's playing out and we're barely aware of it. Yet the way we kind of regulate that and try and live in the social world where there's all this sort of expectations and uh, you know, there's ways to be and we have to kind of uh, limit our instinctual drives and it's, it's people who struggle to marry uh, that regulation with their instinctual drives that also can suffer mental health problems so it's actually three disciplines that's what mental health is and that's why it's such a fascinating field to work in because you're trying to marry and mix all three and as a psychiatrist I guess your key power and why mental health even falls under medicine is because of that neuroscientific aspect and there was a view that we would learn more and more about neuroscience and that would that would kind of overtake everything else and we'd have this mastery over psychiatry over mental health but that really is not how it's gone gone about and I would argue partly because so much of mental health has a very strong social component. So, so much of it's really about how we bond with other people. Uh, it's, it ma so much of it's about early life and whether we had a stable uh, kind of initial period of, of when our personality forms or when our brain forms and our first interactions with other human beings, usually your mother. Uh, and then so much of it's also about just making sense of our life. And that has a bigger dimension. You know, that has a moral dimension, it has a metaphysical dimension. Um, so often mental health overlaps very strongly with that. So we can diminish its descriptions um, when, when we just have it under a strictly medical label. I guess that's one of the risks in Western societies, which is sort of a, in the sort of society we live in now, Tommy, it's sort of, there's a, it's de-ritualized. So we have much less ritual, we have much less religion, and there's lots of good things about that. But that's why I think it, it could also limit 
our ability or, or even the language we have or the rituals we have to deal with adversity and suffering. So when things go wrong in life, uh, there's also a huge pressure now on having what kind of, you know, I guess being happy, if you like, on self-fulfillment. So one of the arguments in Fragile Nation is that we've had these trends, whether it's reduction in community, reduction in religious life, but also a huge pressure on self-fulfillment, trying to lead kind of real fulfilled lives and rise up the kind of meritocracy or social ladder. That's a huge pressure. And that's historically quite a new pressure. Uh, you know, it's only really in the last half century where such a pressure existed. So the combination of all those are, are often big contributors to, to what might be called uh, mental health problems. And, and sometimes we... I mean, as a doctor, I have a limited ability to do like influence any of that when they somebody comes into my rooms, and often the bit I can influence is, you know, their brain or their their outlook to some extent. But I certainly can't easily influence the broader sort of social or cultural dynamics. And it's probably partly why I'm attracted to writing. But I think we we diminish some of that at our peril. You mentioned the primitive component, and I think it's pretty important to touch on that in terms of the primitive brain i think you've called it the lizard brain the primitive part that is attracted to instant reward and tying it into social relationships and how much of our brain is actually dedicated to forming social or tribal relations is a strong survival advantage i mean the reason why we've been such a successful species is because of cooperation between groups and between individuals. But in times of a pandemic where social physical interaction is limited and we've thus become more reliant on technologies to fulfill that social validation, but the way that many social media platforms function is trying to keep you on for as long as possible, which can lead to social vulnerability and insecurity which can lead to perfectionism which is i guess the behavioral adaptation to insecurity what is your take on the role of social media in mental health so tommy yeah what you alluded to the lizard brain is very important so uh, the, uh, the 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 theory of that comes there what used to be an idea that the brain was kind of three different bits kind of it was made up of three major sections so one was the really primitive lizard what might be called the lizard brain and that was all about instincts. It was uh, it was reptilian, you know, inst aggression, disgust, sexuality, these kind of things. Then there was another bit on top, which was called the limbic system, which was all about social. And that was really the mammal bit. So all mammals tend to be far more social. Um, and that was called the limbic system. But what humans have at a bigger level than any other species is the cortex on top of those two elements, which is the, the rational part. So we often view that as what makes us human, the reason, if you like. But the reality is, well, these other parts of us are equally, if not more powerful, and they all kind of uh, exist together. Now, you alluded to social media, and one of the interesting things we've had, say, in, in especially with commerce, but generally there's always been a battle of, uh, be it business or governments, trying to manipulate our natures, of course, for their own ends. And commerce has done this with the lizard brain to some extent where things like be it fatty food or tabloid media, there's all these things that give us a quick hit and stimulate the lizard brain. Um, uh, but, and then we get bursts of dopamine. And really it's what in the wild we might have got with nice food or uh, being attracted to uh, the opposite sex, these kind of things. So we're getting those sort of hits they're being exploited in some ways through different elements. And that's happened for you know, hundreds of years. But what social media does, it is, it, it, it's, it's just especially effective because now that you have a smartphone, so it's on the end of your hand. So even with fatty food, you, know, you, have to, you have to go to the shops, you have to buy it, you have to bring it back. So the ease of delivery has never been as, as smooth as it is now where we have a smartphone in our hands. So we can get the kind of instant hit of dopamine um, so easily and so effectively. And this is, I guess, the power of social media that can alter our, it can exploit our primitive circuits, you know, so uh, with, with such ease. And this does have a strong overlap with mental health. I mean, a lot of mental health is really the tricking of our natures. So, so much of anxiety disorder, for example, which is probably 
amongst the most common disorders, is us overestimating risk. And again, our risk, our, the nature, in terms of how we monitor risk, it was designed, you know, if we're on the you know, jungle or something, looking out for tigers, etc. It made sense to overestimate risk because, you know, you, it was, your, the, the potential was catastrophic. You know, you'd, you'd get eaten by an animal or whatever else. You might eat something poisonous or, or fall into a river or this kind of stuff. So now, in modern urban life, it comes out in quite different ways where, we're, where we miscalculate, uh, you know, the fear of speaking publicly or, you know, going out to a party or crossing the road or uh, all manner of these sort of things. So a lot of mental health is really our social and primitive natures um, miscalculating in, uh, in modern life where we're just not adapted to biologically. Yeah, you're right. It can all also tie into addictions and substance abuse, highly palatable foods, pornography. I oh, actually addiction pornography. I mean, there's a term called. We basically live at a time where there's a philosopher who uses this term of unending novelty. So we live at a time of there's a challenge of unending novelty. So we've never had as much novelty available, and as you say, be it pornography, fatty food, social media. And, and so easily available and so cheaply available, so cheaply available, it's just about anyone on the planet can access it. So this is one of the big challenges we have, uh, whether it's parenting or even as adults. I mean, I've got uh, relatively young children and you can see that as a real big challenge, trying to minimise impulse control, trying to uh, instil kind of a, a gr delayed gratification um, you know these are these are huge challenges, and, and possibly it hasn't been as challenging as, as they are as they is about. This is as challenging now as they've ever been. Mm. Just relating to social media from a modern masculinity viewpoint, there seems to be a gender transition because I know the suicide rates and mental health rates are staggeringly high, and as a male speaking with another male. I think it's important that we touch on this. As a male, there seems to be a lot of self-contained stability that you want to show off or be in the position, and this may be a primitive thing, to make it seem like we've got our shit together. And it can often tie into a professional identity as well, positions of power. But the underlying mental health could be from tying yourself too closely to your professional identity and that you must mask and suppress everything withstand it all for myself personally i've had huge transformation just by showing more compassion males often hold themselves back from being compassionate and giving off the impression that you're strong and bold and self-contained what do you think the risk is or how do you think males should go about this gender transition Look, you're right, it's a real challenging time. Uh, there is a gender component, if you like, to certainly self-harm and suicide. So men are almost like three times likely. Uh, and it was actually, it was. Uh, I was pleased that the most recent Productivity Commission did make a real mention of males being uh, a special risk factor in suicide. So we have had these big sort of social and economic changes. You know, you think of men, you've changes in the economy where manufacturing's died, died to an extent in rich countries. You've had the decline in the importance of physical labour or hand labour. Um, you, you've had a blurring of, the, of roles within the household between uh, males and females. Uh, so there is a degree of, if, if not confusion or, or tension, if you like, what, what the role of men and women should be. Um, and obviously that plays out in the workplace very significantly. Uh, now, in terms of it, women are actually far more likely to self-harm or they're far more likely to present to mental health services, whereas blokes are far more likely to actually finish suicide. They're far less likely to uh, actually voice thoughts of harm or present to services. So this presents a real challenge. And you're right, historically, you know, the man you know, role had more traditional roles. We weren't necessarily talkers. We, we were protectors and... Uh, you know, workers, if you like, were warrior. It was a warrior kind of uh, ethos. So all of those things. Uh, it, it's hard to know what, yeah, what is the right way to be a man is a kind of thing. So there's there's one view, you know, we, there's certain 
movements, if you like, that men should just be more like women now, you know, we should be more open, we should cry, and uh, we should be rearing children, all of those things. And, and I think an element of that is true. Like, there's definitely um, a component that the modern man, you know, can be more caring, they can be... Uh, they can work in the caring industries, they can rear children. So there, there's a, that emotional intelligence is possibly more important and more valuable um, than ever. Um, you know, I've done this, I do think that can go too far because certainly in treating males, I also need to be, I think we need to be careful that sometimes the model we have in mental health doesn't actually apply to everyone. So that therapeutic model, <laughs> come in, talk about your problems, this sort of stuff, it doesn't work for everyone. And we have to be mindful of that. Uh, especially for a lot of males, working class males, uh, a lot of ethnic groups. For example, where I'm talking to you now in, in southwestern Sydney, in, uh, I work in Bankstown um, Hospital two days a week. You know, we've got huge numbers of ethnic groups. You've got Africans, you've got Pacific Islanders, you've got all these different groups. And sometimes they need, often in their therapy, you've got to incorporate action better, uh, some sort of physical component. Uh, you also need to incorporate groups better because they don't necessarily, uh, it's quite a Western thing viewing yourself as individuals. So you often need to incorporate rituals and groups because so many of their problems are about they, the way they see themselves in relation to whatever group that they identify with. And, and you alluded to my books, you know, Fragile Nation had, is, also overlaps with that where so many uh, people from different cultures often need a group component to their therapy. My most recent book is about shame. It's called In Defense of Shame. And that also overlaps with that, where shame is often underneath a lot of mental health issues, say trauma, for example. Um, uh, so going back to your question about men, this is where uh, we just, I think we need to be a bit more innovative about how we approach the, the kind of stereotype of a lot of mental health is the bearded kind of forward looking guy talking to you and, you know, kind of analysing you, <laughs> this kind of stuff. So I think we need to kind of broaden the notion of, of what mental health therapy is um, uh, away from that in a way. I think that should be just seen as one type of mental health therapy, but I think there's a, there should be a whole set of other types of therapy that we can better tailor according to different groups, including lots of men. You mentioned various ethnic groups and also religion earlier on in this conversation, I want to bring up spirituality as part of a mental health deficiency, we could call it. And often with mental health, we're looking in material form, like what might be lacking in someone's life. This could be a social connection, which isn't material, but often we miss the spiritual component in terms of who we truly are, our deep sense of self, our essential self. And I want to open this to the potential treatment of psychedelics. And we're having this conversation because we're both advocating for psychedelic-assisted therapies through mind medicine. It's interesting because there seems to be a lot of different pathways and crossroads into this field of psychedelics. How did you first come across psychedelics and how do you see them coming into the branch of medicine? Yeah, look, I think I've always had an interest. I remember in medicine when you start doing psychiatry, and I, I certainly was interested in um, you know writers like Timothy Leary and, and I guess figures of those sixties, and and psychiatry has such a such an interesting intellectual history where, where where psychoanalysis was the dominant kind of thing for a while, and many of these figures had sort of strong overlaps with that. So they were sort of philosophers, but they're also kind of psychiatrists and doctors and they it was very experimental you know there's a real time especially in the that sort of periods 50s 60s what's called the counterculture there's real kind of there was such a buzz around being innovative about how we see the human being and its human potential and consciousness all these kind of stuff so it, it was extraordinary time intellectually and many people who are attracted to psychiatry will will be aware of that and certainly while you're doing medicine and I mean, let's be honest, while you're at uni as well, you know, certainly, you're certainly surrounded by lots of people who are using these drugs as well. So I wasn't, I wasn't unfamiliar with, with uh, you know, people talking about it and using it, etc. So there was a real fascination about these, uh, about these drugs, but especially clinically, when, when you start seeing 
psychiatric medications and where they work. So, say the you know say the most commonly used drug, say the antidepressants, where they primarily work on serotonin. Just this kind of real overlap with, you know, it's not like taking paracetamol. You take a paracetamol and it affects, uh, you know, affects uh, the way you perceive pain. Uh, you take something, uh, psychiatric drugs, and I often have to talk about this with my patients, and they're right in a way. We often sell mental health, go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's like, a, it's like if you've got diabetes and you need a tablet. I mean, in reality, that's not how people experience it, and that's not how it is. Like, mental health treatments do touch on deeper issues of the self and and meaning and how you uh, make sense of your life. And most people who present to mental health, they do come at a time when, when there is a crisis of that sort of stuff. You know, more often than not, they're coming at a time in their life where there's been some sort of crisis or they're going through a transition. And they're really asking those big questions, like, who the hell am I? What the hell is the point of my life? And that's coming out through symptoms that we call depressed mood or heightened anxiety. And it's like their moorings are, are a bit shakier. So you're absolutely right to incorporate what might be called spirituality. And even though historically we kind of think of this as almost, you know, like a bit of, uh, you, you think of people with beards or churches, etc. but there is clearly a biological component to this, isn't there? I mean, there absolutely is. And we're learning more and more about this. And you alluding to the psychedelics, I mean, that's what's most extraordinary about them on one level, where they seem to touch on a deeper component of being and how we view the world and uh, how we interpret uh, our place in the world. So it does really touch on consciousness and, and, and spirituality. And, and obviously lots of people have spoken about this experience uh, when, when they've um, um, taken these tablets. But there's also a kind of, we had the earlier discussion about the lizard brain. One of the most interesting aspects of psychedelics is it seems to dampen our responses in the lizard brain. Uh, which, I, which I'm especially fascinated by because so many disorders, be it, say, trauma disorders, anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, they're often about entrenched kind of patterns, if you like, within the lizard brain or, uh, or other parts of our brain. A lot of mental illness, there's a view that, a modern view of mental illness is it's almost like you've got circ emotional and thinking patterns kind of stuck, but they're rigid, it's like they're stuck. And, uh, and we're trying to alter them, whether it's through psychological therapy, whether it's through medications, whether it's through more invasive therapies like electric shock therapy or transcranial magnetic stimulation, which, which, is a, you know, which is a treatment that's being used more now using magnetic fields. So all those treatments, ultimately their aim is to kind of almost reset the brain a little or shake up these rigid circuits. And what you're alluding to about psychedelics that seems to be where they have a kind of a special or an exceptional power, that they seem to have a component. Not only can they almost reset the brain, shake up the rigidities of mental health, mental illness, thought patterns or emotional patterns, but they add this other dimension, which to be honest, in healing, most people, you know, you see, get better. And look at addiction recovery, you know, things like AA, et cetera, they incorporate a spiritual dimension. While, while it may not be, they, they try not to package it too heavily as that, but the reality is people who recover from things like addiction or depression, more often than not, they need to incorporate, it, it doesn't have to be the, be the dominant component, but has to be a component where they really start grappling with, okay, who am I? What's my place in life? And sometimes challenge rigid ideas they have about themselves or, or how they respond to people. And without some sort of component of, uh, of modification, I thought what they're trying to do is what are the bits of me that I keep? Uh, what are the bits of me that I keep? And what are some bits that I almost need to let go? Uh, and that's often what they're weighing up. And I think psychedelics uh, present just an extraordinary opportunity in, uh, in just adding a dimension to that type of treatment. So really, that's why I just think it's, it's just a compelling intriguing um, uh, prospect and not just in treatment but also in research I mean the I mean what what we what the the avenues it opens around learning more about human consciousness is I mean god who wouldn't be excited by that you know you'd have to be it's one of those things where it just marries you know the biggest spiritualists and, and religious thinkers in the world with the most hard-nosed scientists so in terms of you know marrying the science and the art 
of the human experience. I mean, I can't think of anything more compelling. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's such a fascinating field of medicine and research. It is science, but it's also philanthropy and so many different fields are joining together, whether that's the exploration of consciousness or improving mental health or neuroscience. And neuroscience is really interesting. If we were to talk about the primitive brain, you're probably familiar with the default mode network, which seems to be the sense of the self or the seat of the self in terms of brain imaging. The default mode network is what seems to be where the bulk of rumination takes place, like when we get stuck in those rigid thought patterns. And you mentioned the shaking up of primitive components. Talking neuroscience, it would be the decoupling of the default mode network, opening it up and shutting it off from your conscious awareness. It's like when we listen to a song enough times, it too gets stuck in our heads, but we seem to have separation from that because it's not us putting it into our awareness, it just pops up. But we need to have the same approach to all thoughts, really. It's the same thing. If we are telling ourselves things constantly, it becomes a solid connection or neural network and we get stuck. We can't take ourselves so literally all the time. We need to go to work daily on what we're telling ourselves. So we need to be aware of what we're telling ourselves if we want to change what we're telling ourselves. It always begins with awareness. How can you change if you are not aware? And psychedelics in the nature of shaking up certain aspects of our humane rigidity can be extremely helpful in working through those mental barriers, which are almost always self-imposed. But when those connections reform or come back together, there needs to be a certain degree of delicacy in remolding a new brain. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There, there, there is certainly a degree of risk in this because the fact is, I mean, human minds are, you know, potentially relatively fragile. And um, these sort of treatments are, are potentially quite, you know, they're powerful treatments. Um, and you know, the potential is extraordinary, but they obviously need to be managed. And that's what we'll, we'll have to, you know, really learn about what are the best ways to manage it, how we manage the risks. You know, they're not without risk. I mean, no treatment is without risk. And there are risks in um, psychedelics as well. And we need to, uh, you know, be very cognizant of how best to manage that. But that, that shouldn't be a reason that, uh, you know, we try, we, we minimise the sheer potential of these treatments and try and understand. I mean, realistically, civilizations, you know, right across history have used these um, both as treatments and as, you know, conscious raising experiences, as, as communal rituals, all of these kind of things. So they've played a part in, you know, human societies, you know, pretty much forever. Um, and, you know, we're just at a, we're at a time of human knowledge where we can really understand that at a deeper level. In the same way, so you think of the last half century, and again, some of this comes out of the 60s counterculture, where we've learned so much about the physiology of these ancient kind of Hindu or other traditional types. You know, we've learned about the physiology of meditation, for example, uh, or, or the physiology of Chinese, Chinese medicines, how some of them work. So I think this, this is potentially a, another even more exciting frontier uh, where we can really understand how it works and then think of how we apply it best in, you know, a very modern um, psychiatric and psychological treatments. Yeah. What is the journey for psychedelics to enter the legislative branch of medicines? Look, I think we're making slow And look, there's a lot going on now, isn't it? Right across um, in Britain, the United States. And look, some people will be on top of this better than I am. But my understanding is while, you know, they're being given... Initially, it needs to be, uh, we're getting some initial kind of inroads into a greater comfort in it being used in research. And I think that's critical. And I think that can be opened up a bit more. And then the next step is, okay, what are, what are, what are the limited ways we can use it uh, in a clinical context? So, you know, the most obvious now, I think, is where you might use psilocybin or ketamine in a therapeutic context. So you've already got people undertaking therapy with a with a psychiatrist and in a very uh, restricted way you could begin allow a component of prescription under these types of scenarios i think that's the most obvious next step where 
in terms of how it might be used clinically, and there's plenty of work going on there. So psilocybin uh, is the most obvious contender. It's what the one we know most about. Uh, so I, I think that's hopefully the next step, and I think there's a lot of, I think there's real potential that something like that could happen. And look, we are speaking at the time of COVID, um, uh, Tommy. So it's interesting how I think this has been a really exceptional year for for scientific and medical treatments as well. And we can see when there's a real urgency how regulatory and other components can really come to the party. Uh, so some of these traditional barriers, you know, when there's a real sense of urgency about a treatment and, and you have, uh, you know, all the necessarily stakeholders kind of backing it, uh, the possibility is, 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 is extraordinary. So uh, while I'm, you know, I'm not suggesting it's, you know, psychedelics, uh, you know, reach the threshold of COVID vaccines, but you know, there is, a, there is an urgency about this because, you know, mental health treatments, mental health is such a critical part of, uh, of modern societies uh, that uh, yet, you know, treatment advances often remain stalled. Uh, you know, the drug companies too have, have pulled money out of a lot of their neuroscientific research. I mean, some of that may, may come back, they may some of those priorities may return, but, but there is a huge urgency here that, that can't be underestimated. Just to close this one out, I seem to have a circle which is strongly for psychedelic use in psychiatry, but a lot of them also aren't really pushing it or advocating it. So to finish this one out, my questions are, A, how can people support psychedelic medicine from a local government standpoint? And B, where can we direct people if they're wanting to help shift mental health treatment but aren't necessarily advocating it as such? Yeah, look, I think it's an important question. So one, I guess people need to educate themselves about the nature of it. We have to be careful because I I think there is a stigma. So even in the profession, you know, if you're an advocate of this, there'll be some people who will see you as, oh, you're you're into legalising illicit drugs or... Uh, you're a bit of a tripper or whatever it is, you know, you'll get, you, there'll be some of that stigma that we need to be careful of that. And that's, that's where sometimes we, we really have to be, I think, politically very astute that's very thoroughly about the research and the treatment and, and very thoroughly scientific. Um, you know, it's not that we, that we can take trips and, and go on drives across America like Timothy Leary did or something, you know, like it's not the 60s counterculture sort of making a big return. Um, but then it's really about, especially, you know, a, a key driver can be the, the carers and families of sufferers of serious illnesses, particularly things like post-traumatic disorders or treatment-resistant depression, uh, you know, these kind of illnesses, which, which are, you know, very significant in the community. I think, I think some of the groups that have closely connected with sufferers there can be a very strong voice because uh, I think they're some of the groups that are really going to benefit, they're, they're going to have the most to benefit from some of these treatments. Um, so I think that's the most obvious space. And then, you know, in terms of a purely government point of view, you know, getting in, whether it's your, you know, local MP or, or media stories uh, uh, or, um, you know, other health-related bodies, you know, Mind Medicine, you know, the, the group we're both part of. You know, these are great places to, to potentially get involved with. But I think the initial stages is you must get a bit educated on this because I think the risk is when you, a lot of, when you have a lot of different people freelancing or speaking out about it, there is a component that looks like, uh, it, you know, people just want to take the drugs for, for kind of leisure purposes or, or for their own ends. And I think that's what can then detract from its research or, or treatment purposes, which, which is the absolute priority. 100%. There is a discussion about psychedelics in optimization, but first and foremost, we have the mental health crisis in front of us, and we need huge changes in treatment if we're to have any chance of resolving such a widespread issue. Yes, there is that stigma, but there's also stigma when it comes to something like our diet. Veganism being the most advantageous in the protection of nature, deforestation, and resolving climate change still has its stigma but we need to get past that and realize that this is not about having titles this is about healing humanity and healing the planet and i think wherever you sit on the spectrum for psychedelics whether 
that is recreation or wholly therapeutic use, it must begin with education. These are not normal drugs and we need to desensitize from the word drug as well. But Tanvir, thanks so much for having this conversation. I appreciate your time and everything that you're doing in this space and I hope that we can have this chat in person one day. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Well, at least the borders are opening up, so we look forward to gathering physically in the near future. Wonderful. Thanks very much, mate. Cheers. Thanks, Tom. Well, there it is. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our endeavors, the best thing that you can do is leave a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This will help expose this information to the people who are seeking it. If you're curious to learn more about psychedelic assisted therapies or related information, I would like to know a little bit more about the services, events, and programs that Mind Medicine Australia offers. Please head to mindmedicineaustralia.org and you'll find all the information your so heart desires. And finally, the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for advice provided by a doctor or other qualified healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease. Patients should consult with a doctor or other qualified healthcare professional for medical advice or information about diagnosis and treatment. All right, we did it. Thank you so, so much if you have come all the way to the end. I appreciate that you have an open mind towards new paradigm shifts in the way we treat the world really i hope you're enjoying these episodes if there's something that you're curious about or have a question relating to mind medicine you're also more than welcome to send me an email at tommy at mindmedicineaustralia.org otherwise i will see you here for the next one until then keep well invest in yourself <laughs>